Thank you, Pastor Gallows, and thank you, worship team. Man, isn't there just some mornings you just feel like when that last song ends, you can just pack it up. I'm not sure I could take any more. That was just so glorious. Well, before I forget, and I know I will, um, first, I am, I am just so grateful for Pastor Michael, Pastor Michael Birchfield's ministry to us. And um, so if you're wondering why he's not here, he, 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 he's going to be taking one Sunday a month and going back to the mothership. So, so he's back in Morgan Hill today, but um, I just can't express how grateful I am to the Lord for his ministry. Um, I am so enjoying the study in 1 John and look through Look forward to going through the entirety of the epistles of John. And Michael wanted us to have this. So in, in the back corner, my left on the bookshelf, you'll see one of these. It's an ESV scripture journal. And we've had one of these before. I think when John took us through 1 Corinthians. But they're, they're just fantastic. The scripture is on one side. And the, and the facing page is just open for notes, you can use this in a lot of different ways. You can sit here and take notes while Michael takes us through John, or you can study ahead, make your own notes. But I think you'll find it a great tool to, to draw you into the study and, and, and just assist in, in retaining things and um, writing down those things that, that are truly impactful for you. So hope you take advantage of that. Um, we welcome donations, but not necessary. Pastor Michael wanted to make sure everybody had an opportunity to get one. We might run out, so grab one if you want one, and if we need to, we'll order some more. Well, as you heard this morning, Gallup read out of Romans 5, and indeed, um, in fact, I encourage you to open your Bibles again Keep them open through this study. You know, whenever you read about, or read one of Paul's letters, and certainly when you're opening Romans, we're getting into the deep end of the pool, aren't we? And uh, in fact, I'm encouraged that the apostle Peter wrote at the end of one of his epistles that the apostle Paul's writings certainly can be difficult to understand, but they are holy scripture. So if the Apostle Peter struggles a little bit, it's okay. We can struggle a little bit as well. So I had Gallup read chapter 5, 1 through 11, and really the first five, that's, our, that, that, that's just our supporting material for this morning. We're going to be in, in verse 6 through 11. But the last time I had the opportunity to preach, we went through Romans 5, one through five. And I think it warrants, I've had him read that, and I think it warrants again just summarizing that material a little bit because it's going to help us as we go into verse six. So in verse one, Paul begins by telling us, and it's this glorious verse, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, how many people worldwide have that on a little card 
on their mirror and they see it every morning or on their mirror in the car or somewhere. That is just a precious, precious verse for the believer. We have peace with God through Jesus. And he says in verse two that we've gained access into the grace in which we stand. And because of that grace, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He tells us we've been justified. That means we've been declared, a legal declaration that we are righteous in God's sight. Yet, we have a road to travel, don't we? Sin still clings to us. But for the first time, we have hope. We have hope in the glory of God. One day, we will be changed. In fact, he says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And in verses three through four, Paul tells us we also rejoice in sufferings. And that we're taking a little bit aback. We rejoice in, in pain. Is that what Paul is telling us? But he goes on to tell us because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. God is sanctifying us through suffering. And it gives us hope in the glory of God. I can change. God can change me. And by God's grace, I will. Paul says we, we stake our hope on that change. But how do I know that it won't all fall apart? Christian life is a long road. How do we know, as Paul says in verse 5, my hope will not put me to shame? Because, Paul tells us, looking at the end of verse 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts. So over the next six verses... Paul is going to show us that love and how by it we not only have assurance of justification but we indeed have assurance of much more. So picking up with, with Romans 5 verse 6 Paul shows us God's love in a very succinct and clear fashion. He says, for a while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And we can really pull out of here the characteristics of God's love. He says, for the powerless, the weak. And I think we have a hard time seeing our own weaknesses, don't we? We certainly want to see our, we certainly don't want to see ourselves as powerless. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he uses even much stronger language. He tells us we were spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And hear this, this is us. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work 
at work in the sons of disobedience. This is what it means to be dead in our sins. It means to be powerless over sin in our life. But God, Paul says, showed his love for the powerless. And not only that, he showed his love when it was most needed. See that in verse 6? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now you can look at this and it certainly does mean that in God's timetable, when the exact religious and cultural and political circumstances were ripe, Jesus came into the world. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, really says that. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So yes, God has acted sovereignly in time and space, but it also means that those in Christ, that for those in Christ, God has acted to save you at just the right time, at your greatest need. Listen to Isaiah 49, quoted by Paul to the Corinthians. In a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When we were ungodly and powerless to help ourselves at the right time, in our greatest need, Christ died for us. And lastly, God has shown his love to the least deserving. To the least deserving. Verse 6, the ungodly. Now we're going to dive into this much deeper as we go further in our text. But suffice it to say, this is what our merciful God does. And this is not a one-off occurrence, an unexpected consequence of dying for the good people. Some ungodly happened to make it in also. Christ died for the ungodly. Paul wants us to understand the enormity of that statement. And then in the next two verses, he is going to help us grasp it by way of showing us the contrast or a comparison between human love and divine love. So look at verses 7 and 8. First, verse 7, he describes human love. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And this Paul helps us see three characteristics of human love, human sacrificial love, the best that we can show. And the first thing he says is, it's rare. He uses the word scarcely, but it means 
Rarely do we ever do this, right? Has it never happened? No, it's, it, it's happened. But Paul points out, it is rare indeed. And it's not only rare, you could even say it's, it's essentially theoretical. He says, he uses the word perhaps or maybe one would dare to die. Human sacrificial love is not only rare to us, it's actually speculative. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Paul can't point to a consistent pattern or quality within us. But Paul points to a third characteristic of human love, and this is really the most important. It's a qualified love. It's qualified. I might think about it for a really righteous person. I might dare to do it for a really good person. See what Paul is saying? He concedes that on the rare occasion, you can speculate one would die for another, but it's qualified. I think... I couldn't help but think, I'm always drawn to movie pictures when, when, when I'm into sermon preparation, and hopefully I don't use one that is inappropriate. But one of the greatest movies that's, that I think has ever been put out about the, the, um, the, the struggle at D-Day and World War II was certainly Saving Private Ryan. And if you remember that movie, it opens with an elderly man walking through a cemetery. And this is, this is Private Ryan, perhaps 60 years later. And as he gets closer and closer to this tomb or, or, or grave marker that he is heading towards, he, he stumbles and falls to the ground, so overcome with emotion. And then he sees on that marker the man's name. And I can't remember if it was that point or later in the movie, but he looks at his wife and he, and he asks her, is he a good man? Tell me, I am a good man. And then scene fades and it goes into the actual events that, that occurred 60 years previously. And if you remember in the final scene, Captain Miller... I guess you could call him the hero of the scene who essentially has brought his platoon through dire circumstances, losing men from his platoon to German fire, going behind the, the, the lines, ending up shot, dying on a bridge, looking into the eyes of the man he has saved, Private Ryan, and telling him, you remember what he told him? Earn this. Earn this. And that's human understanding of love. You earn this. You earn this. The love of God is an entirely different sort. Paul contrasts that human love with God's love. 
Look at verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Where human sacrificial love is rare, speculative, and qualified, God's love is shown abundantly. See the words, for many. Just a few verses farther in this chapter, in verse 15, Paul says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. It's not only abundant, it's an unqualified invitation to sinners. There's nothing we can do to qualify for God's love. But don't we think just the opposite? Surely God requires me to clean up my act before he will show me his love. Surely I must prove myself worth. But God says to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's Romans 4, 5. The truth is, God showed his love for sinners who are qualified only for hell. But he also shows his love to the least likely, his enemies. I don't know about you, but I think I'd have a hard time dying for somebody who cut me off at the roundabout. <laughs> Let alone somebody who is actively my enemy. The fact is, we were God's enemies. And you may not feel like you were God's enemy. But you certainly were not for God or his righteousness. But most people would never see themselves as the antagonist, would they? For the Revolutionary War buff, you'll remember the name Benedict Arnold, right? We know him as the despised traitor of the revolution. But did you know he saw himself quite differently? He saw himself as the darling of the revolution. He was the aggrieved party, suffering unjustly, unappreciated, and unrecognized. The greatest general of the American Revolution, he would tell you. He thought if Congress and George Washington wouldn't appreciate him for who he was and reward him accordingly, he would go over to whoever, whoever would. That's the right thing to do. And that is the, is the fallen human heart. We want what we want. 
If God truly loved us, we think, he would give us what we want and what we deserve. And I tell you, the last thing we want is what we deserve. This is, as Paul puts it, the spirit of disobedience at work in the world. We're spiritually dead. We're ruled by the desires of our flesh and we're enemies of God. But not only are we enemies of God, the bigger problem is that God is our enemy. God is our enemy, the Bible tells us. He is the enemy of the ungodly. And that is a huge problem. There's nothing you and I can do about it. The holy and righteous God of all creation is the enemy of the ungodly. And this is the mind-blowing thing. God shows his love for the ungodly. In that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. God acted to save us when we could not. Look at this, just to, just to summarize that. God's love, one, it's a historical fact. Christ died. There's no speculation about it. His love was shown for sinners as an unqualified invitation. It was abundantly offered to humanity and he shows his love to the least likely, his enemies. God's love is, is nothing like our understanding of love. We really see love through our own experience, how we express love, how we receive love. But God's love isn't like that. And when we grasp the beauty of God's love, the implications of that love are huge. And that, I think, is Paul's main point in this whole passage. Because of a love like that, we have the assurance of much more. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. I mean, let's be honest, the Christian life is full of ups and downs. The hope of glory that Paul talks about in verse 2 is just that at this point. It's hope. It's not realized. But, verse 3, God is sanctifying us. And that's why we rejoice in sufferings. but we will fail. It's a long road. We will act ungodly. In those Romans, in those moments, perhaps Romans 1.18, crosses our mind and can seem ominous. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That is when our faith is put to the test. Is Christ sufficient? Is his love sufficient? And Paul 
here in verse 9, seeks to give us that assurance. He says, if Christ would die for the ungodly, and now that we are justified, how much more shall we be saved from his wrath? Paul knows our struggle with this. And if you think you and I are the only ones who, who struggle with this kind of thing in the journey of the Christian life, you might be surprised Paul did too. Turn ahead a couple chapters to Romans 7, verse 18. Paul in this, in this text is incredibly transparent. This is the Apostle Paul. After decades as an apostle and a follower of Christ. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And 7.24, you can, just, you can just hear the agony in Paul's voice. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then he says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for the wretched man who on his knees has trusted in Christ. Christ is sufficient. Do you hear that assurance? When we feel most wretched and deserving God's wrath, Paul points us back to the cross. Well, not only will we who are in Christ be saved from God's wrath, but in verse 10, he tells us we will be saved by, his, by Christ's life. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Remember verse 2, that hope of the glory of God? He says we rejoice in suffering because it moves us toward that glory. Suffering sanctifies us. It, it, it buffs and, and, and removes the tarnish and the rust. I mean, I, w I won't sugarcoat this for anyone just at this stage curious about Christianity. This suffering at, at, at times will seem unbearable. The difficulty of the Christian life is real at times. It's also filled with joy and glory. But it's, the Christian life is not easy. And you will at times feel like you won't make it. But Paul assures you, you will make it. Think of this illustration. I hope it works. I struggled trying to find some picture that would make sense. Say you're on a sinking ship. 
No real allusions to a movie or anything. Okay, this is just a ship. Out in the middle of ocean, ice cold water. You couldn't live for more than 30 seconds in that water. Lifeboats are all gone. No hope. And suddenly, an officer of the deck appears next to you, dives into the water, swimming out. You're just thinking, well, he's just done. And through the fog, you see a lone lifeboat floating on the water. He barely makes it to that lifeboat, climbs in, shivering beyond belief, but rows back, pulls up alongside the ship, beckons you to enter, to join him in that, in that rescue. And behind you, behind him, you see a second rescue boat pull up about 100 meters away, way too far to swim. You'd die in the water. And he begins to row you back. But you begin to wonder, can he do this? Can, can he do this? Listen, he's already done the hard thing. He's swam out through the fog, through the ice-cold water, brought the, bat, the boat back for you. He's going to get you the rest of the way. Paul's message to the suffering Christian If God reconciled us by his son's death, meaning he has done the hard thing, much more will he save you by his life. That's the really easy thing. So Christian, be encouraged. Jesus died to save you while an enemy. Surely now as his beloved He lives to save you no matter what comes. There's so many verses that encourage us in this. Think of Colossians. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's our hope. It's, It's not our life. It's Christ's life in us. Or Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Or Hebrews 7.25, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you hear that? He lives to make intercession for us. He eternally is before the throne of God interceding on our behalf. It is the life of the resurrected Christ that will save you to the end. Turn over to Romans 8, 30.
So oftentimes, Paul is kind enough to take a, a giant truth and synthesize it down for us. We can see it in a little bit more succinct fashion. Romans 8, 30 through 32. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, and I'll add much more, graciously give us all things? If you were to say, what more could there be? What more could there possibly be than all this? Oh, but there is. There is. And Paul continues in verse 11. He says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation. All you saved sinners, me too, I have to ask, do you rejoice in God? Do you rejoice in God? Paul tells us we rejoice in God because we have received reconciliation. Now, up to this point, justified, we're, we're talking legal terms, declarations of a new status before God. That's good. Reconciliation is a term of relationship. You know, there are millions of marriages across the U.S. that are obliterated by two words. Does anybody know what those two words are? I wanted this to be interactive, but that's okay. We're not used to that. (laughs) Irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable differences. There are a few that reconcile. I know what that feels like. And I can tell you, I rejoice in my wife. Can you imagine if at the last minute the divorce is called off, but there is no reconciliation? Sure, no child support, no splitting assets, but no reconciliation? Impossible. But I fear for many that profess the name of Christ, they've never received, they have never received that reconciliation. 
Sure, I want to be a Christian. I want to stay out of hell. But they never receive reconciliation. They never open the package and embrace all God is for them in Christ Jesus. God is so good, isn't he? He's done all the difficult part. He sent his son to die for you and me, for, un, for the ungodly, even his enemies. You know what? He'll do the easy part as well. He'll save us from his wrath. He will see us to glory, hand in hand, all the way. And more than that, we will rejoice in God. Do you see how in a, in, in a reconciled relationship you can, you can rejoice in that person? If, if you have trouble rejoicing in that individual, perhaps there's some reconciliation that needs to take place. Let me put that a different way. Reconciliation has taken place for all who put their faith in Christ. But all do not receive that reconciliation. In our Bible reading, I came across this verse from Habakkuk. It was definitely one that had been highlighted, but I just love it. Habakkuk 5, 17 to 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Would you join with me in prayer? Father, we give you thanks that, Father, you have, you have justified us. We have, we have peace with you through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, you have placed within our hearts the hope of the glory of God. One day the sinful world will be gone pain and suffering and violence will be in an end and your holy and righteous kingdom will be all we know. Father, you have, you have proved to us through your love, a love given to the weak sinners the ungodly, even those that are your enemies. Father, and you showed that love by putting your son on a cross. Father, we take that as an assurance. Father, you will never let us go. You will see us to the end. 
Father, to the day of Christ Jesus, you will hold our hand through the most difficult stages as you shape and craft us and form us into your image. You desire holiness for us. Father God, help us to receive in full, in entirety, the reconciliation you give us in Christ. Father, we will rejoice in you, our God. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here this morning. I, I just have so enjoyed this uh, study myself personally. Don't forget Harvest Festival is on Tuesday. We'd love everybody to come out. Um, bring a neighbor, bring a friend. They're, they're going to hear the gospel and, and they're going to be able to mingle with believers who, who love and glory in Christ. And tonight, if you're able, if you saw in the bulletin, Michael Birchfield is doing a historical biography of, I'm going to mess up his name, John Chrysostom. Chrysostom. Um, but he's a church leader from the fourth century. Michael promises it'll be inspiring, and he loves doing this, particularly around Reformation Sunday. So I'm planning on going. I'd love to see you up there. We can intermingle with uh, other believers at West Hills. Um, if you need any information on that, you can see me, but it is in the email that I sent out. Have a blessed week in the Lord, and may you rejoice in God. You are dismissed.